Hello and welcome to another episode of Don't Worry, It's Not Just You, a podcast that strips away the artifice of success and pretension of the creative gig economy to which we are all bound. Each episode, an illustrious guest joins me in my quest to make sense of this bizarre new world of mass resignations, passive incomes and e-commerce explosions. But really, we're here to show just how the sausage is made, for better or worse. I am your host, Phoebe Paradise, and I hope this email finds you well. He's an esteemed biographer and journalist who's written for the big boys, Vogue, GQ, The Bulletin, The Herald, The Guardian, and notably rocked out for four years as music editor of Rolling Stone magazine Australia. He's a published biographer that has authored over 25 novels detailing the exciting and sometimes sordid histories of famous musicians. According to former colleague on LinkedIn.com, he's a thorough, hardworking and collaborative writer who tells a damn fine story. And who am I to argue? It's Jeff Apter. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jeff. Wow, that's the best intro I've ever had, Phoebe. I wonder who wrote that. The the LinkedIn comment, I mean. That's very nice. It was someone who didn't give their last name, so I can't tell you. I'm sorry. Better than some of the comments I get on Facebook, that's for sure. It's lovely. Uh, Jeff, I have very much enjoyed diving into your history in the lead up to our chat today. And there's so much I want to ask you about. You've traveled the world and interviewed the greats of music history like Aretha Franklin and Bruce Springsteen. You've been punched in the face by Tex Perkins. (laughs) You (laughs) have done deep. That's very good. (laughs) In your experience, would you say that music journalism is a business of making friends or a business of making enemies? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Um, I think you've got to find a middle ground between the two. I mean, I, I certainly, um, looking back, made many times, made the error of liking the person that I was working with. You know, um, yeah. you go out on the... And I'll give you a classic example. It's better to talk Please. specifics. I was living in America in the late 90s, and I had this ongoing gig, and this was before I was on staff at Australian Rolling Stone, but I had this ongoing gig with them to write about Australian acts that were coming over to America. And this is at a time when um, when Silverchair really blew up in America. So a lot of bands were following their lead and hoping to do the same. Um, and I remember Grinspoon at the time were a band that was, you know, pretty big at home. Yeah. And, and so off they went on their American Odyssey, right? Off they go. And we met, <laughs> I met them in New York. And they were staying in this shitty flea pit of a hotel, like, you know, all the band and, and their entourage in one room. And they were playing third on the bill to nobody outside of New York, like in the suburbs on a Tuesday night. And we, we had this really very pleasant experience. I took them bowling. I took them to a strip club. We took photos. It was all good fun. 
But the reality was they weren't doing very well. You know, they weren't doing very well. So I wrote this story and I, I must admit, I, I probably added a little sugar to the story about how they were going to break America and so on. And, you know, it was just yeah. this really, it wasn't quite a puff piece, but it was on reflection. I should have been a bit more straightforward about the less, the likelihood of them actually achieving what Silverchair did, which was next to none, because there was yeah. a thousand green spoons in America and they didn't need another one. And there was no, they didn't have an angle. Silverchair had an angle. They were 15 years old. You know, yeah. yeah, right. I mean, yeah. that's that's the a marketing man's dream. You know, Silverchair, whereas bands like Grinspoon and later on Powderfinger and and Killing Heidi were another example of that. Bands, yeah. you know, even Ella Hooper said to me, they've already got a no doubt. I don't know why they need us. And I thought <laughs> she was right on the money. You know, she was right. Anyway, so I wrote this story, particularly about Grinspoon and for Australian Rolling Stone. And then when I returned to Australia, I remember reviewing one of their records. And I just thought it was crap. I mean, it was really bad. And I just said, you know, and I, and I said that. And I thought it was just lazy and it was done just basically to, to cash in on the success of earlier records. And they just lost their mind. I mean, we... They're like, you took me bowling, man. What the hell? It really was. It really was. You know, it was like you were my... I, we thought you were our friend. And it's like, well, you know, I just wrote a story that had no sort of subjectivity because I wasn't talking about a record. I was just talking about your, what you, I was chronicling what you were trying to do in America, which is vastly yeah. different to reviewing a record. And it, it got really ugly. I remember once um, I was at, this is another thing. When I was at Rolling Stone Australia, Rolling Stone Australia had nowhere near the budget of Rolling Stone America. What are you talking about? Yeah, I know. Fancy that. <laughs> Unbelievable. So we used to have to go hand in, cap in hand to the record companies particularly when things like the Arias came up, you know, can you buy, can we be on your table? Will you buy us a ticket for the Arias? And I turned up on uh, the universal table right next to Grinspoon. And, you oh, know, they, it was really funny. They had these silly, silly little name plates. And when I got there, I couldn't find mine. I'm going, what's going on? And I realized they'd thrown it under the table because they refused to sit with me. You know, all this kind of nonsense. Oh, my God. And I later found out that upon reading the review, Phil Jamison retired to his room and cried. It's like, toughen up, Buttercup. It's a really tough business you're in. You know, you're not going to get very far behaving like that. He's, so, you know. You just said like a really unrealistic precedent of the music industry for them. They're like, we went to America. Yeah, we I made know. some great friends. We, we went, went bowling. Dancing, uh, we went yeah. on a date. It's so vastly different. You know, there were two different concepts altogether. So, you know, that was a classic falling out. And you mentioned Tex Perkins before. That's another classic example. It was the first Splendor in the Grass. And I mm -hmm. got sent to. Byron. Actually, I remember it well. This is a Powderfinger story. Um, Universal said, come up to Brisbane. Powderfinger is shooting a video. Then drive with the band down to Splendor because Splendor was really Powderfinger's festival. Their, yes. you know, their management company basically ran and still do, I believe. Um, I think, in fact, I think they own the grounds on which the festival is staged now, if I'm not mistaken. That and every venue in Brisbane. There you go. There you go. So off I went to Brisbane and it was great. I always liked the guys from Powderfinger and I, you know, really admired how successful they were. So we went down to the, uh, went to Brisbane, did the video, went down to um, Byron, spent some time with them. And there was a, a little add on to my trip and Universal said, look, the Cruelty have got a new record. Um, on the Sunday after the festival, um, Tex Perkins is, is invited to drop to his house. You know, he lived just outside of Byron. And, um, you know, if he could do a little piece on the Cruel Sea, that'd be great as well. And, you know, I'm a big Cruel Sea fan. I had no problems with that. So I um, I woke up in the morning and met, you know, uh, one of Tex's people. And we got in the car. It was about a half hour drive out of Byron. 
And the first thing he wanted to do was put a blindfold on me because he didn't want me to know the whereabouts of Texas secret hideaway. And I thought, I'm not going to Justin Bieber's house. You know, this is, you know, what are you talking about? You're like, uh, also there's like three roads in Byron Bay. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's not like take, you could just drop it, like throw a rock and it's probably within 500 meters of his house. (laughs) Exactly. And it's not as if his neighbours wouldn't say, hey, you wouldn't believe who lives next door, you know. So anyway, so we, we got through that little um, complication and uh, I did not go blindfolded. Um, mm-hmm. And we got there and it was great. He lived in this lovely property. It's outside, you know, it's really, it's in the hinterland. It's, he's, got, he's got a hill. He's got his own hill. You know, it's very nice. We had a lovely lunch and we played football and some people came over and um, we did about a five-minute interview because Tex was hosting. There were other people there as well. It was quite the get-together. And at the end of the night, they, um, there was this huge bonfire, and it was beautiful, oh, wow. you know, Byron Skies. It was really very, it was like a hippie dream. It really was. And uh, the, the neighbours came over the hill, you know. It's like something out of Woodstock, I swear. <laughs> and, um, you know, I went away thinking, oh, that was really lovely. That was really, really nice. You know, really, really nice experience. Not thinking too much about the story because, you know, at that time, the cruelty were on their way out. So... Mm-hmm. Went back and worked on the magazine. I wrote my Splendor in the Grass story and wrote this half-page piece on um, the Cruel Sea. And I was somewhere, and it might have been at the Arias or somewhere like that, an old text... Oh, sorry, before that, the, the magazine came out and someone, mm. the publicist from the record company rang me up and said, oh, great, you know, this great Splendor piece. We need to talk to you about the Cruel Sea. And I mm. said, oh, yeah, what did, yeah, it's good, you know, got nice coverage, lovely photo, wasn't it? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> And they said, oh, no, no, we're, we're really disappointed with the coverage. You know, we want to expect it more. And then the photo went to someone higher up the line who said to me, Jeff, you don't understand. Tex lit the bonfire for you. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I spent the next 20 years trying to work out if you light a bonfire for a journalist, how many pages in the magazine does that equal? <laughs> and, it, and it is true. Not long after, I was at a, an Arias or something and... and um, I saw Tex's wife, very pleasant, hello, how are you going? And then old Tex stumbled out and started calling me, I think it was half-page after or something, and, and really staggering in my direction. And I think his wife dragged him off. I'm not sure he actually took a swing at me, but it got really ugly. <laughs> and I thought, man, you know, which goes back to your question about, you know, friends or enemies. Uh, I thought it was, I completely misread that situation because the entire day seemed like a really pleasant uh, experience it was someone just saying you're welcome to my house mikasa sukasa yeah exactly <laughs> and ultimately they got some coverage anyway it wasn't like i completely ignored them but uh yeah it was a real eye-opener for me and and very telling and uh, it it was an ongoing problem because as i say rolling stone had no money and um yes. yeah well, we had it sorry we had money but we had a very tight publisher um because yes. we were in a a, a part of a, a publishing empire that produced 20 different magazines rolling stone was just one of the titles so um it wasn't those the budget was just all exclusively funneled into rolling stone so in order to try to even come close to achieving what the american magazine achieved with a big budget uh we we're really hamstrung and there were a lot of expectations that it was um a much more a much bigger enterprise than what it really was there was only three people worked there you know uh, yeah no kidding yeah, yeah. are you serious there was Holy a, shit. an editor, there was me, and there was a designer. That's all the, the, with the staff. You know, there was marketing people 
and so on. Yeah. But that, editorially, there was only three of us. So it was really hard. And not a lot of people believed you, which could get very tricky. But it, <laughs> it, it did lead to a lot of times really um, having to kiss up to the, the labels particularly, you know, and it, I, ne I always hated that. You know, I, I always felt that if I got something, there's no, I always felt there's no such thing as a free lunch. If I, if I was given something like a free lunch <laughs> or concert tickets, <laughs> there was a trade-off. Yeah. yeah, I was always aware of that. But um, it got to a point where I just felt terribly uncomfortable with it. You know, it was, I'd much rather, and eventually I left, I thought I'd much rather find a way to do something, which in my case turned out to be writing biographies, that just felt less, um, less like a, uh, how can I put this? Like a barnacle on the bottom of the music industry. Because <laughs> that's what it started to feel like. What an indictment. <laughs> no, you really felt like you were just this leech. You know, it was, it was yeah, awful. And also wow. because I came to realize, um, if you, so I guess this is a nice segue, but when I started, mm. when I started and it was what, the late 80s, I've been around for a long time, there was... A lot of the music, particularly writing about music, was a uh, you could make some, you could scrape together an okay living out of it because there was, God, probably four or five magazines that paid. There was Street Press, there was, you know, Rolling Stone, there was um, a number of other magazines, there was all the dailies, right? So you had all the dailies you could pitch stories yeah. to. Plus, once you get in with the record companies, they would tack, you know, they'd tap you for writing press releases and things like that. So there was definitely the potential to, if you worked hard, you had to do a lot of work and you were out seven nights a week, you know, which in some ways is fine. You know, I mean, I, I lived on a diet of record company free dinners for years, <laughs> I swear. You know, because you go to a launch, right? So you go to a launch, yeah. the record launch. I'm sure you've been to record uh -huh. launches. And it, yes, yes, yes. It would be catered, you know, there would, there'd be a little bit of food and a lot of booze and it would all be free. So it was fantastic. So, I mean, there was all, but there was always a quid pro quo with that is that it would be, it would be ideal if you loved the act, you know, <laughs> I mean, so, you know, yeah. it, it was, there was always a trade-off, but at the same time, I think there was way more potential and this is pre-internet too. I mean, yeah. if you fast forward a bit, say 10 years to the end of the 90s when the internet was really starting to make an impact with music writing again there were outlets that paid you know there was uh, i remember i was living in america and there was uh, sonic net addicted to noise rolling stone all these magazines and and websites started springing up that actually paid for content yeah so it was, it was wild a, yeah it was, <laughs> well, it was concept it was good it was really good i mean you'd never make a fortune but you get um i mean everything you did pretty much was covered you get free tickets to gigs you get ideally getting fed and, and watered, <laughs> etc., um, and sometimes getting paid, you know. But now, I, I have no idea. If you were starting out now, where, where the hell would you go? You know, who would you write for? And that was at a turning point, I think, like I said to you earlier, um, a point. So we're getting into the early 2000s now. And, and the music press is starting to have less of an impact, I think, um, you know. Radio was more important. The internet was becoming hugely television. important. Television, yeah, and and you got to know over time that those were much more. The record companies knew it too. They were much more effective ways of selling the product. Um, you know, whereas the music press, well, you know, 
you might get a nice feature on someone, but you know, you might get something in the the Weekend Australian that looks good, you know, that kind of yes. stuff. But it doesn't. Yeah. It would never sell records that you know it didn't meet their commercial expectations. I guess to 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 explore that that point you brought up about Rolling Stone Australia folded. After uh, okay, a well, it's a it's a it's a, right? it's a it's a long and winding road, Phoebe. Let me just yes, yes. <laughs> so when I when I worked there, it was the it was one publisher basically, um, um, but part like I say, part of a a company that ran about twenty different magazines. Then it was sold to Bauer Media, came in and sw- and just jumped in and bought a lot of titles, um, but did a very very quick cull of those that, as far as they were concerned, were making a lot of money. And Rolling Stone would only sell. And this sounds funny. It'd sell about twenty thousand copies per per issue, right? Which was generating advertising revenue. You know, it was generating a couple of hundred thousand dollars a month, which in the the publishing world for magazines for for magazines with some identity isn't a lot of money. You know, this is a time when new idea and um, I don't know uh, was the other one NW were probably yeah. you know they produced maybe a million dollars in revenue a week you know they were big magazines so bauer came in anyway and they realized it was hopeless and shut it down it was picked up by um independently by a guy who ran it for a couple of years and basically um and this really pisses me off i was i was back writing for them um this is probably i don't know up until five or six years ago and it was really run just out of someone's front room, you know, just a couple of guys working on it. But they started, they commissioned a lot of work when they had no money left, when the bud went, they were uh, yes. virtually out of business. And so they left yeah. owing a lot of people some substantial amounts of money, which I've had with other magazines and I just hate, you know. But more recently, <laughs> more recently, it's been picked up by the same company that does the brag, the street press magazine. And it's it's now produced as a quarterly, um, and I I haven't seen it, um, but I did have this very funny experience recently, which I guess says a lot about its current status, is that I wrote a book and my publisher pitched it to them for a review, and they said, oh, we'd be happy to review it. It'll cost you seven hundred and fifty bucks. <laughs> like, hang on, that's not how it works. Oh man, <laughs> that shit drives me fucking burko. Well, that's the first time I've ever you... had it with. Rolling Stone, or, or in yeah. fact, with any music press, to be honest, that's the first time I've ever experienced this. You know, the pay yeah. for play and um, standard practice. Now, I was horrified. I really was. Yeah. You know, I was horrified yeah. when we used to review anything, be it books or records. When I was there, it was because you were interested in them and thought the audience might be too. Yeah, it's about discovery. Yeah, it wasn't about generating revenue. In fact, we used to get really editorially. We used to get really pissed off when we found out the ad people. You know, the marketing people had play were placing ads for a record next to its review, and we actually, if I remember correctly, we said, "Don't do that. It's just cheap. It just cheapens it." And our readership is smart enough to see right through that. How would you navigate something like that? So, if you've got a critical review for a piece that you're kind of like, I don't know, man. I don't know if this is a winner. But say the ad department would be like. Hey, but you know we're getting a, a few cool foul from these guys. Yeah, to, like, I, promote look, I won't album, deny like... there was a little conflict there, but we always tried to be independent, try to be separate to that. We, but we would know who's buying advertising. Um, not always for what particular. We'd know Universal or buying advertising or EMI or whoever. Um, but in some ways, it was good not to know um, what specifically. <laughs> 
what specifically because there was always a relationship between advertising and editorial anyway because on a simple basis of we've got a 128 page magazine the ad people would say how many pages can we have you know can we get and the publisher would say we need 32 pages of advertising to make this you know workable financially so that conflict was always going to be there. It, but look, sometimes it worked to our advantage. I'll give you a good example. Um, the band Custard, right? Brisbane band. When I was there, they were a pretty popular band at that time. Probably done enough editorial to last. In fact, I did a story with them in Memphis. Yeah, it was when I was living in the States. We'd done it. We ran out of editorial ideas for Custard, right? And I think there might have been a new record. and But we knew that the advertising department needed a, a fashion shoot. They needed a fashion shoot in the magazine, which was a common thing. Fashion shoots were really good because you could get a, a band who you didn't want to write about. You could get four pages of advertising because you do a big fashion shoot. The, ba the band, the label would be happy. Well, we got four pages. The ad department would be happy because they sold their four pages of advertising. And for us, it was great because we didn't have to write another story about bloody custard. So, um... <laughs> And I remember quite, quite clearly giving, running a four-page fashion shoot of them wearing all this gear that was, you know, getting spruiked in the magazine. So everybody yeah. was sort of happy. So sometimes working closely with the ad department could work to your benefit. You could deflect. Uh, so. And I used to get a lot of free clothes, which was great too. So that was nice. Hell yeah, that's what and I And can you believe this? The woman, we used to do a lot of work with, um, with Levi's. And, um, oh, I the, believe it. The woman who worked there, her name was Jean. She was the Jean Genie. Get the fuck yeah, out of here. Yeah, I know. That's Come just on. crazy. <laughs> That's amazing. The Jean Genie. <laughs> she was great. So, yeah, look, there was all those, those kind of trade offs going on. You, you know, I'd like to speak, I'd like to say how idealistic and, and, um, and objective I remain, but there were still times when there was always going to be conflict. It's, it's inevitable because, you know, it's, it's like what I do now, it's a commercial endeavor. You know, I, I write books, firstly, because I'm interested in the subject, and secondly, because it's my livelihood. And there's a million subjects, there's a million people I'd love to write about who I know I'll never be able to get a book deal. So, you know, and I can't write a book without a book deal. It's as simple as that. So I totally get you. The one thing I've learned after all these years, that's it. I've only learned one thing. Be practical. <laughs> be, be realistic. Great advice. If you want to make it. A, if you If you want to make a living, there's other, you know, if you want to do this, as a, a side hustle and get a real job, knock yourself out. Just write about really obscure things, and that's fantastic because I'm sure they all deserve the coverage. Um, but, you know, the reality that I embraced was that I was going to do this for a living, and how was I going to do it? Well, I was going to find subjects that, A, I wanted to write about, and B, people wanted to read about, you know, really yeah. simple stuff, and C, I know that I had a good chance with enticing publishers to produce these books. Preaching to the choir, my friend. And I learned that from working at Rolling Stone. I really did, you know, about this this pragmatism because it's a small market. You know, it's a small country, you know. It's only 25 million of us. America's vastly different. It's 10 times as much, you know. There's a lot more potential to, I don't know, spend a week with some obscure band and write this great, you know, 5,000-word story for the New article, Yorker. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, oh, it's, so it's not here. It's not here, you know a bit of a harsh reality was that I learned pretty quickly over time we all did that work there is that it was very hard to sell a local band on the cover very hard the you know who work the most successful act uh, by streets by miles if you put Daniel Johns or Daniel Johns and the band on the front cover you wow. you knew that regardless of what was inside you'd sell 5,000 more copies guaranteed 
So, you know, we took that and went, okay, well, let's put Powderfinger on the cover. Stiffed. And it was, <laughs> seriously, it did. It sold, I think, maybe 60% of what a silver chair cover. And Powderfinger was selling more records. So, you know, where's the equation there? Um, and we explored it with a bunch of different acts. I remember we put Madison Avenue on the cover. Remember Madison Avenue? Oh, yeah, I do. Because, you know, forget? they were huge for about five Massive. minutes. Massive. Yeah, yeah. Issues stiffed. Absolutely stiffed. No one was interested, you know. So over time, it became very clear to us that there was really only one or two local acts, you know, Silverchair in particular, um, that we and we do two a year if we could. And, the, you know, the other big one was the Nirvana, not the local act, but the other fail safe, put Nirvana on the cover for whatever reason, it. anniversary of Kurt's death, you know, something, put it on the cover <laughs> and it would sell more issues. And, and it like set... It really told you a lot about the readership. You know, they had very specific and they weren't, it maybe wasn't the same as record buyers. You know, the, the people who bought a Powderfinger record probably in some, you know, good chunk of them weren't Rolling Stone readers. So it was, it was, it was quite an eye opener for us. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the one person who I always wanted to put on the cover who I think might have really changed things and been a really interesting case study was Casey Chambers. Because yes. you know, I was one of the first people, and I, I say this very proudly, to write, once she became a solo act in the late 90s, um, I was yeah. one of the first people to write about her in mainstream media. And I thought she was great, and I still do. I think she's fantastic. Yeah. She was total free spirit, absolutely untouched by, you know, any kind of commercialism or any of these stuff, and still working for a major label. You know, how'd that work? You, you worked with her on a book as well, is that right? Sure, I was really lucky. I went in to help her write her book, which was another, I could write a book about writing the book. That was a really interesting experience. And, but, you know, she was someone that really struck me as someone who just operated way outside the guidelines, you know, how yeah. it's supposed to be. But unfortunately, this was also the time of, you know, uh, pop stars and, um, yeah, the show pop, was, was that what it was called? Pop star? You know, and then fortunately I wasn't working there as it went into The Voice and all these other karaoke TV shows. Um, but uh, Guy Sebastian was a good example. I think he was starting to emerge at that time. And, you know, I thought, thank God I'm not working there then because I just don't regard, I don't rate these people. I think the more interesting musicians that I got to write about were the people who did 10 years in dingy pubs, who served an apprenticeship. I'm not saying it's essential. I don't say you have to do it. I mean, good luck to anybody who short circuits their career, finds a way to, you know, avoid all that. But you would typically find those who'd taken that journey were much more interesting and much better informed than those who thought, I'm going to go on a TV show and get famous. Yes, and may have more of a story to tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, Casey was a really good example. And I was really, like I said, it's one of the things I take great pride in is that um, I was one of the first mainstream writers to, to really uh, write about her because I just thought she was Love really, that. really good. I just thought her songs were good. She was really interesting. She had this fantastic backstory about being, you know, the daughter of a fox hunter raised on the Nullarbor or this kind of... For me, as you know, a suburban guy from Sydney, it was just, you might as well lived on the moon. Oh, 100%. And she's a sweetheart too, right? Great she's speech a few years ago at the Arias about, uh, you know, my dad told me, don't be a dickhead. And I thought, man, <laughs> that sums her up so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Words to live by, truly. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Your journey with, uh, you know, music journalism didn't start in the mid two thousand, early 2000s. It started in the 80s. Yeah, so, the 80s, uh, you yeah. know, 
I, I'd love to hear how that, you know, journey sort of began for sure, you. Sure, sure. Well, my, uh, my career is based on two, uh, two incidents of absolutely dumb luck. Okay. The, okay. I was um, late 80s. I was in my 20s. I had, I was just working in a, I'd finished school, didn't go to uni, had vague, I had, a, I was a big music fan. Okay. So when I was a teenager, particularly, I had a lot of friends and we all had older siblings. And these older siblings all had really cool music tastes. So that's how I got introduced to Bowie and Lou Reed and, and Dylan and Neil Young and, um, you know, just the best music. So, you know, I was really lucky. So I had that education. And at the same time, there was a great live scene here. So as someone said to me recently, you could go out on a Tuesday night, go to the pub and find out that 500 people were doing the same thing, going to see three bands, you know, and those bands who, you know, it could be Midnight Oil. It could be Cold Chisel, it could be in excess. You know, it was a really great time. So I had that that musical education, I guess. But I was just working in a bunch of kind of so-so uh, admin white-collar jobs. But with yeah. this vague idea of wanting to be a writer. And I read a review in a magazine, and it was really funny. It was an audiophile magazine. I think it was Australian Hi-Fi, which is not a magazine mm -hmm. I would normally read. But I was obviously bored. And I'm at my desk, and I read this review, and it was an REM record. And I remember going, this guy, who's writing this review? It's complete bullshit. They got it completely <laughs> wrong. And typically, I just throw it aside and, you know, grumble and groan and get on with whatever I was doing. But in this instance, mm -hmm. I wrote to the editor and I said, mate, I don't know who wrote that review, but you got head up your eyes. You don't know what you're talking about. Da, da, da. And he, he, wrote, he wrote back and he said, well, as a matter of fact, it was me. And if you think you're so smart, why don't you write some reviews? Ooh. You know, the challenge was laid down. Okay, I will. And I wrote a bunch of reviews and I wrote for that magazine for the next 20 years. No shit. Oh my God. So you, you guys buried the hatchet then, I hope? When the, unfortunately, the guy died and when he died, that incident, because by then I'd had developed something of a, a reputation, I guess, that incident was part of his eulogy. <laughs> How bizarre no is that? Way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so bizarre. Yeah, I'm the guy Jeff after told to, you know, get his head out of his ass and I'm the guy who hired him, you know, so... <laughs> More power to it. It was really flattering. You know, wow, that's amazing. So um, yeah. that's how I got started. So um, I was writing for this magazine, then started writing for Street Press, which was really the big thing in the 90s to write for. And it was, a really, it was a really exciting time. There was a lot of really, because there you could write about local bands. You know, you could write about Rat Cat. You know, you could write about the Hummingbirds. <laughs> you know, all these really interesting yeah. acts that were coming through. Um, and there was a real scene in Sydney based around the Lansdowne Hotel, the Annandale Hotel, and all these places. You know, it was a really, mm. it was really lively. It reminded me a lot of my teenage in the suburbs. Like I said, when you could go out on a Tuesday night and there'd be 500 people there. It was a lot like that. It was a really good time. Um, and then I started writing for Rolling Stone. I went to America in the mid nineties, stayed there for a couple of years. And that's when I got access to, that's when I met Aretha Franklin and Patti Smith and all these amazing people and really got a good resume together, got a good CV of work together um, and came back. And so I'm back and I was working at Rolling Stone and I was getting tired of short form writing. You know, it's a, it's a typical writer passage, I guess. You, you start out as a journalist writing your 100 word reviews and your occasional 1000 word features, but you really want to get onto something media. And um, I could tell I was getting towards the end of my tenure at Rolling Stone. You do about three or four years is the limit. You get burnt out after that, you know. You've probably done 
50 or 60 magazines and you've pretty much done everything by that point you know you know you, <laughs> yeah you, you start like repeating yourself a bit after you that, have written enough captions to last you for the rest of your life right and uh, <laughs> and so we used to one of the things we used to do is we used to run a lot of book extracts because you get them for free so you know you'd run, run four or five pages of free content and this goes back to what i was talking about before about having no money you know, if, yeah. a, if a publisher came to you with a book that was you think had some interest for the readership and they give you five pages of content and photos, fantastic. So um, one publisher came in and, and did that. And I was just talking to the woman and she said, geez, you've been doing this for a while. You know, where's your book? Why don't you write a book? Again, the challenge, right? And I said, oh, I don't know. I said, I've been spending a lot of time with Silverchair lately. Maybe there's a book in that. And she said, I'll offer you a publishing contract if you can deliver a book on Silverchair. And that's, yeah, so again, it was just a challenge, you know. And what year was that? 2003, thereabouts. Wow. Yeah. So, Fabulous. and I'd just been writing about, they'd just been making Diorama, which was, to me, was a really important and great record. And I was lucky. I, I got to spend time in the studio with them. I got to spend time in LA with them. Um, I went up to Daniel's house when he was really sick. Um, you know, I got to know them well. Um, yeah. So I had the story. And so I basically did that. Actually, I wrote that book while I must have been still working at Rolling Stone because I'd work during the day and come home and work on that at night. And oh, when that was published, I mean, it didn't go crazy, but it gave me enough confidence to go, okay, I can probably pursue this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so that's so, you know, those two key moments for me were both purely out of someone, me being, in the first instance, being a smartass, um, and, in, and in the second instance, me going, hmm, Maybe I can write a book. I'm really curious um, how how you come from the conception of really interested in writing a story about Silverchair to how do you get in the room with them writing? I mean, I'm assuming this was an authorized biography. No, no, it was somewhere. Or... It was a weird one. It was somewhere in between the two. Yeah. Um, to no, an authorized biography. I mean, I've written, I've ghostwritten with people. I've written authorized books I've, and mostly unauthorized books because that gives you a lot more independence. But it's also, there's a practical level. Like I'm just writing a book on Keith Urban. And if we wanted that to be an authorized book, it'd probably cost a million dollars. Yes. Right. Because that's, yeah. his, that's his price tag these days. Yes, you know, I can imagine. To have his imprimatur and he's okay for a book, that's, that's the, the, the practicality of it. And no publisher has that kind of money. And also an authorised book, it sounds like you'd just be going back in time to Rolling Stone magazine where you're there is having a, to... Yeah, there's, a, there's a school of doubt, you know, there's a kind of... Yeah. About, oh, authorised, oh, okay. Yeah, if you do authorise, like how much of it is penned sanitized. by the... Yeah, sanitised, yeah. penned by the agents uh, well, that the, the, manage their lives. And all the co-writes and the ghostwrites that I've done, I've been really lucky. The people I've worked mm. with, and that's... Casey Chambers, I did some work with Richard Clapton, um, Mark mm. Evans, who used to be in ACDC, and a bunch of other people. They've always been very upfront and very, they've been at a point in their lives where they're willing to spill. Um, yeah. You know, if you write a book about someone, if you approached, I don't know, who's a big, who's a big local star now? Someone who's at the start of their career, which is probably the best time to write a book because you're going to get the most money. Um, yes. <laughs> would they be willing to be as forthcoming as someone who's been around for a while mm -hmm. and is probably at stage two or three of their career, right? Yeah. So I've been really lucky that the people I've, and this is, it's a bit random. It's not like I've, I've 
chosen this, but mm. I've been fortunate that the people that I've chosen to work with have all been at a point in their lives, particularly their lives, more so than their career, where they're willing to really um, tell the truth. No I more spin, that. no more bullshit. Casey Chambers, again, was a classic example because she had this eating disorder that she hid. And this was around the time of her second record and everybody knew something was up, oh my uh, God. but it was spun, you know, it was spun so that, um, you know, it sort of got buried away, even though it was physically mm -hmm. obvious something was happening. And in the book, she went, no, it's time to really let it all hang out. And so many people wow. read it and went, fuck, I had, you know, <laughs> I had some idea, I had no idea but I did, well, I had a little idea, but I didn't have yeah, yeah. that big an idea. It was that bad, you know, so that was great. That was really, really, yeah. for me as a writer and I guess as someone, you know, I admired her, I, I, you know, we're friends. So um, it was yeah. like, wow, good on you. You know, you really, you, you got beyond the hype here. You've got beyond yeah. record company spin. So I've been really lucky in that regard. Um, but yeah, getting people to, to um, authorize books, that's, that's a very expensive exercise. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> and, and so, you know, in, in your process of, of writing these stories, uh, when you're not write, uh, working directly with the subject of sure. the book, um, you know, part of your process, I imagine, would be finding people that were around them in their life so yeah. like you know reaching out to managers friends family that kind of thing oh i also you know i always let like for instance again the latest book i'm working on keith urban i wrote yes. the first person i wrote to was his manager saying hey this is who i am i've yes. written about this guy for a long time i want to write a book um and i don't say i hope you don't mind it's more i'm just letting you know you know yes. and making you aware making you aware and sometimes yeah. i'll come back and try to and, and actually give you input uh, other times they'll keep hands off. In this instance, because he's such a big star, I've got a couple of, you know, vague thank you for your message responses. It's like, that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> the automated response. The automated yes, response. Love it. And that's uh -huh. fine. That's fine. There's nothing okay. in there that's going, that's, um, you know, books are legal to death these days. You know, lawyers mm -hmm. have made a, mm -hmm. a, found a lovely side hustle in reading and legaling books. Because We're in the wrong industry. We Jeff. are the wrong industry. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's nothing there that's problematic. I don't know. I used to really be concerned about it, about oh, I'm mm. writing all these kind of unauthorized books and people see them as sort of scandalous. And then I thought, well, no, I mean, they're not, you know, the books I'm writing, because I've always got a musical perspective anyway, and I'm more interested in, you know, how did that song come about? How did that album get created? Who worked on this? What happened there? Why does this song sound like that? Without getting too nerdy. Um, so, and in a lot of the instances of the people I've written about, their shortcomings, like in Keith Urban's case, he's been to rehab a few times. He's always been very outspoken about it. So yeah. it's not like I'm, um, you know, scandalously lifting the lid on some, you know, <laughs> some skeleton he has in his closet yeah, because his closet has always been on full and ample display. It's wide open, baby. Yeah, yeah like Daniel gotcha. Johns too. Daniel Johns is another good example of that. So, yeah. you know, you're really just re-examining things that are already very much out there in the public so um public domain so you know i've got beyond feeling a bit sort of sleazy about it i want to talk about your process as well before we finish today um oh the book in the book writing world yeah moving on to that when i was working with casey chambers this is a another classic example of know yeah. you know your product okay know who you're running <laughs> it um it was a big deal. She got a great deal from HarperCollins, big publisher. Um, yeah. You know, we had a good amount of time to work on it. Um, 
if I remember correctly, she was pregnant again, which always gives the story a bit more spice, you know. Um, and we worked really, and it was a really good relationship. I went up, she was living up on the central coast. I'd go up once a week. I'd stay overnight. We'd get all this stuff down. Then I'd go away. And I was working, ex- it's very rare, but I was working exclusively on this one book. Typically, you're juggling a bunch of stuff simultaneously, right? But in this case, because the money was good, I was working exclusively for about 12 months. And we came up with with what we agreed was a really strong manuscript, really strong story um, with, as I said before, a lot of stuff that people didn't know about her that was quite revealing. Um, Sent it to the publisher. And um, the publisher, who were very excited about having Casey Chambers on the books, very Mm -hmm. so much so... And this was where things started to go a bit awry, that the uh, the publisher herself would turn up at Casey's gigs backstage, which was just, oh. a, you just didn't do that. As, as welcoming no. as Casey was, you'd never turn up unannounced. It's really quiet. Oh, Jesus. So it's like, oh, God, she's really hands-on, isn't she? Uh-huh. Submitted the manuscript. I got a call from my agent saying, ah, oh, look, it's a bit of a problem. Um, the, pub- the publisher isn't real sure that that's the story they want told. Um, you know, they're not so comfortable with all this stuff about the Nullarbor. It's like, dude, that's what her story. Hell? You know, that's her story. Okay. She said, look, she said they're bringing in another writer. Um, look, just sit tight for a while and we'll see how it plays out. Oh, shit. A little, uh, so I was really upset, but at the same time, and they, Casey rang me and said, is this normal? It's like, not really, but let's just see how it plays out. Okay. Wow. So, um. It, it rolled on for a little while, and then I got a call from I think it's Casey's brother, who is also who's also a manager, and he said, "Jeff, we've we've seen the new draft of the book, and I'm going down to the publishers now. I've got the manuscript, and I've got a box of matches, and I'm going to set it fi- on fire and return the check." And I said, "I remember saying, dude, that's probably not such a great idea." Um, and then my phone rang, and it was my agent, I think, saying, "Hey, the publishers just called." And they think maybe you should get back on the project and finish it. <laughs> and I swear, that idea? Tw- it had taken 12 months between me coming off the book and me delivering the book. And the book I delivered 12 months later was exactly the same as it was, you know, when I was taken off it. And it became oh a bestseller. Oh. So it was a really good example of someone not knowing what they were talking about. Leave it to the experts. And, you know, with someone like that. And it was great because we went out and when we went out and promoted the book, she was pregnant. And, you know, it was just a really, I'll tell you a funny story, actually. We went to, yeah. we're in Melbourne, and the response to her was so big that we, we were going to do a little bookstore event, but we had to move it to a public school somewhere, like a school auditorium, and there was yeah. about 400 people there, and she stayed, she had to be about 12 months pregnant by this time, I swear, I've never seen someone so big, and um, she stayed and signed <laughs> books for everyone, and every second person who came up had a child, and that child's name was Casey. It was really oh, weird. Oh, my God. That's so cute. It was very, very charming. Yeah, she's so loved, you know, so loved. Yeah, so that yeah. was, a, yeah, that was one of the more interesting book publishing experiences I've had. And ever since then, I thought, unfortunately, it's never been repeated. I mean, well, fortunately, you haven't been kicked off by another writer. What the fuck is that about? Well, and, and it was a, it was a, apparently the the woman who came in to do the so-called repair job on the book had worked with, you know, on prime ministers and people she was a real high flyer but she didn't know this but she didn't know the story i mean i knew the story because i'd spent years working and writing about casey previously and also would yeah wouldn't have the story wouldn't have the relationship therefore wouldn't have 
a better story to tell. Yeah, it's a bit, you know? it's a bit tricky to walk into a room and say, hi, I'm, you know, I'd like to meet you. Can you tell me, you know, tell me about your eating disorder, please, you know? Seriously. I mean, I can only imagine that would be like built up, you know, that, that kind of, uh, like having a, a subject of, of a book, um, you know, a person willing to be vulnerable with you yeah. and, and trust you to tell a story. You've got to know them well, yeah. In a way, you've got to have that close relationship with them. It's um, it's a good book yeah. too. But I think she got she's been divorced since then, so we need to write a new chapter. And I think there's another child, yeah. so you know we need the uh, it needs an update. I mean, why not now? Maybe once you've finished the Keith Urban story. Um, I think I think if Casey ever wrote another book, it'd be like a cookbook or something. Oh, I love that! I would watch a show with K- Casey Chambers cooking on it. How do we go, Anna? Or... Sick. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, that's that's my other publishing story. So, but do you want to talk about methods and approaches? And I want to hear about your process, Jeff. I mean, you know, as someone who has been working, you have uh, self-described, you know, and uh, gainfully unemployed or self-employed um, for 20, 30 years. It all depends now. who I'm talking um, to. You know, if you try to explain to people outside of my world what I do, they look at you like. So what do you do? For Crazy. Yeah, what do you do for a living? It's like, yeah. Yes. Well, and you know, I mean, like even when you are as, as successful as you are, I imagine a lot of the time there's still this sort of uh, hand to mouth, week to week kind of kind. There of... are very fallow periods. Yes. Yes. How do you manage it? Um, my wife has a really good job. Um... <laughs> yes, that's the secret. She's my... a psychologist. You know, she's in a sensible field of work. You know. Um, no, you just get used to it. I mean, I, I get, if I get paid, I get paid a nice chunk and you just got to make sure that that chunk can, you know, don't be a payday millionaire. There you go. That's, that's, that's the best. Oh, that's a good piece of advice. But there's also little things. There's odd things for the more books I write, um, and professional writers would know about this. There's, you get paid for your book being borrowed in the library, you know, once a year, yeah, once a year, you see a royalty through, and when you've got. 20 or 30 books as I have distributed across hundreds of libraries in the country. It's actually a nice little earner. So there's wow, little things like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. And plus when you have a lot of books out there and some do well, you see, a, I see a trickle of royalties throughout the year, twice a year, you know, so there are ways and means of surviving. I do library talks. Um, yeah. They can be quite lucrative. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, 300 bucks for 30 minutes. That's not bad. I mean, not bad at all. Yeah, but you know, if you can string together a series of ten of those over a couple of weeks, you know, there's ways of yeah. of adding to. There's there's no freelance work left anymore. You know, there's no newspaper no. or magazine work anymore or online work. So you have to find other ways, and um, you know, because I can't multiple income streams. Yeah, totally. Because I can't teach. Yeah. I mean, there's probably teaching gigs, but the first thing I'd say to you know potential writers would be don't um, <laughs> do something else. Yeah, can't you design else. an app or something what are you doing you know you yeah, don't waste your time so um, learn to code my friends yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly um but look my okay so my process um mm. it's fairly straightforward how i work once mm. i start you know most books are equally divvied up say there's a 12 month period um three or four months of research and then probably same amount of time of writing and then you get into editing. So, you know, it's fairly, it's fairly, in a very rough sense, it's fairly equally broken up into that. Um, I set myself daily targets when I'm writing, say a thousand mm-hmm. words a day. And quite often I'll stop, even though I'll be in the flow, I'll stop so that I know tomorrow, 
won't be a hard day. You know, so yes. that, that's really handy. That's it's really good. Just set yourself a very achievable target each day as a writer when you're actually in the thick of writing a book. Um, and that way, like I say, you know, I might be really, the words might be really hitting the page, but then I'll just go, that's enough. You know, A, because I don't want to get stale and tired. Um, you know, you hear people say, oh, I wrote for 12 hours today. And, you know, it's like, yeah, how many hours were good? Yeah. You know, how many hours? How were... much of it is just mashing the keyboard totally, and like yeah. making no sense at all? And how did you get to be in a situation where you had to do a 12 hour day? It's the same with musicians. You hear, oh, we're in the studio all night. It's like, yeah. And I bet you it was rubbish after, you know, 10 o'clock. You know, you would have been wasted. You would have been tired. It, it wouldn't be any good. You know, what's the point? So you need to know what your really um, useful energy levels are like. For me, it's about two or three hours. Yeah, I totally get that. It's like we were saying before, like I get my, like, I'm not one of those people that goes, in order to be successful, you should be getting up at 5am and starting your day. It's just like, I know that I'm useless after midday. Like I know this about myself. And so if I like get myself up early, then I can try and like squeeze out of the wet tea towel that is my brain, like a few drops of successful hours. But also then when (laughs) the afternoon's yours, you get a pat on the back. Hey, nice job. You know, you did well. Absolutely. I crack open a beer. Did you do what you set out to achieve today? You know, it's it's, (laughs) it's like any job, you know, set yourself a target. And if you achieve the target, well done you. You deserve a reward, Mm -hmm. you know. It's yeah. sort of like having pets or children, you know. <laughs> so they say. Do this, you'll get that. <laughs> Do that, you'll get this. Um, so I'm very clear cut with that. Very, and I also know, I also know how to say stop, and that that's really important too, because you can, you could write a book for the rest of your life, you know, if you're really mm-hmm. in the thick of it. Um, so you got to, and also I've learnt over time, I really enjoy edits. I I, I work with a couple yeah. of really good people. Copy edits are and project editor who are both um, very forthcoming when it comes to that, that sucks, that's good, that's great, more of that, that, less of that. And you, over time, I've learned to embrace that. You know, it's almost like we're talking about someone else's work when we get to that point. And, oh, I love that. And that's really handy because I know the majority of particularly uh, first-time writers um, mm-hmm. or people who only ever work on one book will find it very, very difficult to be able to, you know, take a step handle back criticism and handle criticism. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was just tricky for me for a long time, but eventually I realized it's for the benefit of the book. Mm-hmm. If it's going to make the book better, embrace it, you know, um, yeah. you know, not everything. I mean, I might get, say I did a, an edit on a book recently. There was probably a hundred author questions and I might've agreed with 60 of them, you know, mm-hmm. and that's okay. You know, that's fine. As long as you can validate why you did something the editors will very rarely insist you change something. So, I I mean, I really enjoy that part of it. I think that's really good. But you've got to be open to um, accepting criticism. And and that goes beyond, you know, when your book goes out there. It's exactly like a record. Once a book's out there, it's out of your control. What people say about it, how people react to it, there's nothing you can do. All you can say is, you know... I mean, if I get criticism, and, and some people are just dickheads, with, particularly with music stuff, they can just be real idiots. Yeah. I'll just, if someone writes me something really impolite, yeah. <laughs> I'll say, thanks for writing and thanks for buying the book, full stop. Yeah. You're like, my haters are paying my bills, baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just can't, you just can't do anything about it. You know, you, you can't change it. 
it's out there and i mean i defend i will i will in some instances i'll defend my work if i know that i'm reacting to something that's completely wrong or unnecessary or you know or if i know someone hasn't read it you know that's that's the worst one your work sucks have you read the book no but your work sucks well you're willing, I, I will allow you to tell me my work sucks if you go ahead and read the book, right? Yeah. I'll send, in fact, in some instances, I've sent people books that, here. Then if you still hate it, <laughs> tell me it sucks. And you're more, like, <laughs> you know what happens nine times out of ten, Phoebe? It's, hey, thanks, I really liked it. Oh I'm really God. glad you sent it to me. Oh, you know, I've changed my mind, you know. so I love that. Yeah, but it's tough, you know, initially it, you could be, I was very prickly about it. It's like, mm-hmm. how dare you say this? But then over time... This is the other thing I've come to realize is that if I, back at Rolling Stone times, if I'd known what's involved in creating something, mm-hmm. in my case, a book, in those mm-hmm. instances, records, I would never have been able to negatively review an album. Yes. Because I would have gone, I bet you this person has gone through some of the things that I've gone through, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it could be. Uh, not enough money to make what you wanted to do, not enough time, uh, pressures from outside, you know, all that stuff that I now understand goes into my, it can happen in my world, yeah. obviously happens in a musician's world. So I, I, I look back oh, and yeah. think, <laughs> I look back and think I actually, maybe it was a blessing that I didn't know because I could be more forthcoming with my opinion, but I don't review records anymore. I just don't do it because I'm, if this sucks, there's probably a reason why. You know, you, you've you've like found your empathy through the the <laughs> process yeah. of biography. Absolutely, <laughs> I really, really have. I really have, and I said that you know I've said that publicly a few times lately. I said I can never review a record now because I just yeah. know I've come to understand the process that's required to you know give birth to something, you know, to create something, and it's it's always tricky. It really is. And I find that across every industry. It's part of the um, subject matter of this podcast, too, is like, you know, you can bitch about bad clients, you can bitch about bad experiences, but you can only really effectively do it when you're on the exact same in the exact same sentence admitting that you've been the bad client yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> before as well yeah. you know like truly like understanding the world of freelancing is realizing that like you are the bad guy as much as you are the victim so totally. much of the time like you're the one that doesn't email back promptly or you know that pays late and all that kind of stuff like exactly. we're all victims of circumstance we're all equally um... flawed phoebe is what it yes is. we are <laughs> i mean it's just that my flaws are better than most people's but that's okay you know I... oh truly i I'm mean sure that's why you're here <laughs> yeah that, i mean that's why we've got the microphone baby <laughs> but yeah so you know that you, you learn really interesting stuff as you go along uh, but look, you know, when it boils down to it, it's not a very lucrative job. It's not. Uh, the only way in my world to make really good living is for a book to be picked up and adapted for a screenplay. Oh, I love now, I've that. Come, I've come close with a few books. Um, my Jeff Buckley book was optioned. My BG's book was optioned, but nothing came of either. And that would be the, the pot of gold. That's the one you dream of. That's the one that makes would give me the luxury to sit back and go, I'm only ever going to do projects that I feel totally connected to the, and I know that I'll enjoy over 12 months. Um, so I've eaten up how much of your time? Okay, an hour and a half. I'm going to get to our um, segment. I was going to... Has the interview started yet, Phoebe? Okay. <laughs> oh, shit, I haven't pressed record yet. No, just kidding. Buy the book, okay, <laughs> thanks. No, 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 it's fun. It's fun. Because typically I'm spruiking. 
typically when I when I that's the other thing when I get to say my next book what's that late March early April I'll do 50 60 interviews you know over a period of time and it's spruik it's spruik it's I mean I'll always have try to come up with interesting stories but the bottom line is you're selling something and you know and that can be a bit tiring after a while I can only imagine and I talk to the same people I talk to the same people you know once a year, I'm, I'm on the same shows, you know. Well, you'll have to come back when you release the Keith Urban book as well. I'll be totally different then. I'll be spruiking. True. You know why you should buy this book? Yeah, yeah. let me tell you. Page 37. Oh, it's a cracker. On that on that spruiking note, like, I mean, I imagine when, especially your time in America, a lot of the interviews you would have done would have been like press junkets. So you're oh, yeah. interviewing yeah, 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 a, a musician who, you know, you've been, they've been sitting in a chair and there's like a revolving door of like 200 journalists that come through. Phoebe, 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 I always had something on my side. Being Australian. Really? Aretha Franklin. This is a great story. I met Aretha Franklin in New York. She was uh, promoting a new record. It's probably 1997. Um, it was a room full of, we used to be the foreign press, right? So there'd be, you know, the German guy, the Swedish guy, you know, uh-huh. the guy from me, the guy from Canada, you know, just a bunch of... Yeah, yeah ring-ins who happened to live there and um who the record company knew could sell stories offshore and what you would do you'd ask the big general questions and then she'd do a little one-on-one just a couple of minutes with each you see them in film junkets particularly you know and um we sat down and she said you're from australia but she said you're from australia and i said yeah i said tell me i want to ask you a question about colleen mcculloch's the Thornbirds." now oh yes phoebe well of all the books in all the libraries, on all the bookshelves in the world. Oh, no. That's the one, you know, least likely that I have ever read, okay? <laughs> but I'm also, I've got a moment with the Queen of Soul, you know, the, the, the Queen of Soul. She, she's asking me, so I have to wing it, you know, I have to kind of improvise. She asked me this really esoteric question about some character in the book, whether it was mythical or whether it was real. And after about a minute, she could see I had no idea. Absolutely <sighs> clueless. Yeah. But she was very yeah. polite and she was really lovely. And, you know, I got my story. <laughs> and about 10 years later, I'm interviewing Helen Reddy, right? One of the last interviews Helen Reddy ever did. Yeah. And she was living this really quite nomadic life in Eastern Sydney in a little studio apartment. Um, almost impossible to associate her with this superstar from the 70s and the 80s, mm-hmm. right? And she said to me, look, I'm leaving Sydney. I'm going back to live in America with my family. I'm cleaning out everything on my bookcase Take whatever you want. Just take something. It's yours. It's like, fantastic. The first thing I see is a copy of the fucking Thornbirds <laughs> signed by Colleen McCulloch, right? And I'm wow. thinking if I could reverse this, if yeah, I'd no. somehow been at the Aretha interview with this book, which I, I have here with me now, if I'd had it there, Aretha and I would have been lifelong friends. You know, we would have been besties. Imagine that. So, you know. Truly the thorn in your side. <laughs> boom, boom. It's very good. You know, fate sort of flipped on that one for me. But uh, it did get, I did get the chance to, to meet two amazing people. So that was great. Oh, that's so cool. Did you have like an, an approach when you would go into these press junkets other than being like the adorable Australian in the room? And I agree. It does go a long way. Yeah. No. I mean, that, all, that, that always worked for me. And so I'd always, yeah. you know. If it got down to questions, it'd be, when are you going to tour Australia? What was the last tour of Australia like? Blah, blah, blah. And they'd always have something to share. And so it was good because they'd been 
asked the same questions by a hundred people, you know, and suddenly they're doing a little travelogue stuff, you know, so it was quite yeah, different. Right. So yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting and useful angle to have. So um, I dined out on it accidentally sometimes, like in the case of Aretha Franklin, but generally, yeah. generally it was uh, definitely a an advantage for me to have that so it was good yeah oh, that's so cool all right jeff so i think we're going to get to our final segment of the show today um before i let you go do i just sing i have to sing now don't i so this is this is now spicks and specs <laughs> as creative types as freelancers we know there's no such thing as a free meal or a sure thing for that matter. Entering any new professional relationship is a total roll of the dice. We have to negotiate our way into every paycheck and even when we think we've mastered this craft, it can come back to haunt us in unexpected ways. This brings us to our next segment, What's My Rate? A choose your own adventure segment, not for the faint of heart. Weary traveller, your payment options lay before you. Cold hard cash, a cold hard slab, artist swap, or the promise of exposure. Nothing is what it seems. Jeff Apter, weary traveller, how would you like to be paid for today's episode? Well, the weather's been a bit warm lately, so I think cold hard slab. <laughs> Weary traveller. <laughs> Probably have... the safest bet, I would think. You know, it, it'll last a little while. I'll get something out of it. I can share it. You know, I think there's space in the fridge. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, that's where I... <laughs> Weary traveller, you have chosen Mead as your payment for this week's episode. Sick! I love it! Shoot me your address and I'll send you some beers your way. Uh, I hope you like the Milton flavoured. Um, my last guest cho uh, to choose beer had to go pick it up from the post office in a humiliating twist of fate. Um, but I will have it delivered to your door. Yeah, because I think my postie might drink it. I think. Jeff, um, I just wanted to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so much for today, uh, for coming in to, to um, for, for being here on, through Zoom to chat about your career and your um, experiences as a writer. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, there's a park bench um, just in this... <laughs> the 38 bus runs from... No, I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> Just jeffapter.com.au. You'll find me there. And late March, early April, you'll be sick to death of me. Um, I'll be, yes. you know, on, uh, you know, uh, street signs. Um, I'll be on billboards. You know, you name uh -huh. it, I'll be there. Hanging out with Hell Richard Wilkins. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's going to be... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, oh, I can't wait. Funny story. Um, I've. It looks like I've set in place a lifelong goal i'll be able to accomplish oh. a lifelong goal with this next book i've arranged to co-host the breakfast radio show at 2tm at tamworth oh my and god and they've said that yes i can read the sport and weather so you know <laughs> that's it that's it that's it this Hell is my yeah, final book this great. is my final gig i've got a whole <laughs> new world is opening up before me you know rural yeah, radio sport and weather that's all i need and maybe maybe traffic if they if they have traffic oh. up there, I don't know. Do they have traffic? Tamworth. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, hard to say. 
So yeah, that's and it. Do you- we find you um, on ABC uh, every now and then as well. I doing do, regular yeah, spot. I do. A, it's I guess about a monthly Thursday night segment with Sarah McDonald, ABC Radio Sydney, where uh, the actually we're putting together a segment now called um, Music on Drugs, um, which will be a collection of songs played by people who were on drugs, made cool. or songs about drugs or songs about you know cautionary tales about drugs. And in my research, I have just uncovered a new Willie Nelson song that he did with Snoop Dogg called Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die. And really, <laughs> I'd, like to think, I'd like to think I wouldn't mind that as an epitaph, you know, roll me up and smoke me when I die. Yeah. He's nothing if not consistent, that Willie oh, and Nelson. And combustible, and combustible. <laughs> and combustible, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, Willie, Willie, would go, Willie would spark up very nicely, I would think. I can only imagine. <laughs> Oh, Jeff. Sort of typical of the segments that we do. It's good fun. I love that. Jeff, thank you so much again for joining me today. And um, I'll make sure to drop all of your info in the show notes. And I am very, very excited to see uh, this new book coming out. So um, thanks again. A copy will be winging your way in a few weeks' time. Oh, you're an angel. And if I ever manage to make it out of Brisbane, I am going to track you down for a beer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a good chance. No, there's a good chance I'll be doing, you know, the rounds when I'm spruiking this book. So let's lock it in. If you ever come up to Brisbane, please hit me up. I'll, uh, I'll talk to Carol about it. Hell yeah.